Hello and welcome to episode 9 of our Thirsty Podcast. My name is Jeremy Lightning, a youth minister at Shoreland Lutheran High School, and I'm here with Pastor Michael Zarling of uh, Water of Life Lutheran Church in Racine in Caledonia, Wisconsin. We're looking today, first of all, at 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, and to get the ball rolling, uh, I'll tell you that as I read these verses, especially the opening verse, uh, here's what hit me. Paul says, Indeed, brothers, you yourselves know that our visit to you was not a waste of time. And the fact that he writes it and puts it that way sort of makes me think, well, it must have been on people's minds that their visit was some kind of a waste of time if he had to tell them that it wasn't. Um, And when you look at uh, how they were received in Thessalonica, um, that you might think that uh, with all of the opposition that they faced, uh, that it was really a miracle at all that the Thessalonian church got started. Yeah, and then in verse 2 he says, even though we had suffered previously and were treated shamefully in Philippi, as you know, we were bold in our God to speak the gospel of God to you in the face of great opposition. And what Paul is talking about is Acts chapter 16, that Paul and his partner Silas were in Philippi. A demon-possessed girl kept following them and calling out to them. Paul finally had enough and drove out the evil spirit, saying, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And when the owners of the girl saw their hope of making money was gone, they had Paul and Silas thrown in prison. But Paul, as a Roman citizen, put fear into the hearts of the magistrates because they had been beaten publicly without a trial. So that's what he's talking about suffering previously in Philippi. So they uh, moved on to Thessalonica and uh, met with a lot of uh, opposition there and, and rioting and civil unrest. Uh, one of the things that I noticed early on in the chapter is how Paul said, Indeed, as you know, we never at any time used flattering speech, nor did we act with greed as a motive. Uh, God is our witness. And that flattering speech makes me think about how um, a, a lot of uh, religiosity today is sort of based on um, making you feel good about yourself. And one of the things that uh, is pointed out when you're a Lutheran minister is that uh, you you kind of tend not to make people feel good about themselves. You're not always flattering them. Um, and Paul says here that's that was his tactic too. Yeah, and that reminded me of the music man, uh, Harold Hill and the music man, that Paul was no Harold Hill. If you remember Harold Hill from that movie, he was saying early on to the mothers of River City to buy into his think method of buying instruments. Uh, He said, mothers of River City, heed that warning before it's too late. Watch for the telltale signs of corruption. Are certain words creeping into his conversations? Words like swell and so is your old man. If so, you've got trouble, trouble right here in River City. Uh, But Paul, like I said, is no Harold Hill. Uh, He has to leave Thessalonica quickly. Uh, The book of Acts doesn't discuss this, but it's clear from 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians when he brings this up that they are facing persecution. But Paul wants to go back, not because he's getting paid for this, uh, but because this is what he needs to do as, as an apostle. This this is uh, something that uh, 
Jesus talks about in the Gospels that the worker is worthy of his wages. Um, and so really it is the right thing to do to compensate people uh, when they share the gospel with you. Uh, but Paul, in a very generous way, and I, I've actually worked with and met certain uh, teachers or ministers of the gospel who do similar things sometimes, that they don't take a paycheck, they don't take compensation when they make presentations, for instance, uh, at, at a, a seminar or a conference. Um, and that's what Paul is telling them here. I, I was not a burden to you. Uh, we, we worked very hard to sustain ourselves for a living, um, and uh, yeah, I do like your comparison with Harold Hill. And I was thinking about how he, uh, one of his strategies was to sweet talk the librarian or whoever was the music expert in town. He wanted to make sure that he would sweet talk her so that uh, she wouldn't realize that he was a fraud. Uh, and that's that's kind of Paul's point in this chapter. He's, he didn't use sweet talking or flattery to try and uh, pull the wool over the eyes of the Thessalonians. Now, if you would have come up with that comparison, you would have been singing the song, but that's not, that's not me. Yeah, and so he talks about that labor and hardship for the gospel in verse 9. He says, we worked night and day so that we would not be a burden to any of you while we preach the gospel of God to you. And think about your pastors and teachers in their ministries. They are often on call 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Now, personally, I turn off the notifications on my phone so I don't get any beeps or bops from uh, text or messenger or email because I figure if some, something is urgent, they're going to call me. Uh, and then I leave the ringer on. And I've received phone calls at 3 in the morning to come to the hospital because Dad had a massive heart attack. But I've also been a pastor long enough, and I've served as the pastor for uh, other pastors and teachers, like I'm Pastor Lightning's pastor, and I'm always concerned that because the ministry can be so long and involved, because it's not something you can just leave at the office. You can't, if you're a construction worker, you can leave that there. If you're a firefighter, you can leave that there. But a teacher is always correcting. A pastor is always on call, receiving emails. And, and I've had discussions with administrations of our grade school and our high school is to make sure that their male and female teachers, their teachers and pastors are receiving time off because they cannot be good uh, teachers in the classroom if they're not good husbands or wives at home, if they don't have time to be the parents to their children. Uh, they need to be leaders in their homes before they can be leaders in the school. It, Paul sort of uh, talks about that, too. Uh, and I, I was kind of thinking uh, as you were speaking that uh, this is the, the home analogy that Paul uses in verse 11. In the same way, you know that we treated each of you as a father deals with his own children. Um, now, for modern uh, Americans, uh, sadly, people might not find that very much of an encouraging um, thing that Paul says because, that you, you know, so many children don't know who their father is uh, or so many children don't have a good image of a father. Uh, and and that's, that's important uh, for, for understanding what God is like, that it's actually a gentle and kind thing that 
at least ideally it should be, of a father encouraging and comforting uh, and dealing with his own children. Um, it, and, I, and I shouldn't be too hard on... Uh, there, there are lots of very sensitive dads, too, who are single dads I, I know of, um, or dads who are fathers of not their own children, who are very sensitive and, and thoughtful. Um, and so maybe, maybe that is a, an analogy that registers more than you might realize today. Right. And I think that's a good way of judging, say, your pastor's ministry. Is it a success or a failure? The temptation is always to base the evaluation of a pastor's ministry is the church growing. Does it have enough money? Are there lots of baptisms and confirmations? Uh, but Paul says that's not how you judge a pastor's ministry. Is he faithful to God's word? Does he put the needs of the church ahead of his own needs and his own personal gain? So are you sort of saying like... Uh a good a good gauge would be to say, uh, it, how much is the pastor sort of like a father figure of a family? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Is he faithful in what he needs to do uh, as the father of the church? And a good example of that was this last week. Uh, I was dealing with the death of one of our saints, Dewey, and uh, his daughter, who was a member, had texted me and said, "Pastor, you know." Thanks for everything you're doing to minister to our to our family, and and I just said, well, that's my job, and she texted mm-hmm. back, well, you're good at it, mm-hmm. and my response was, well, thanks. After 25 years, I think I'm finally getting the, getting the hang of it. Another 10 years, I might have it down just in time to retire, <laughs> but that's the key: is God doesn't judge a pastor's ministry based on numbers or dollars or members he judges based on faithfulness and i pray that's how all of you judge your pastors too uh the the thought continues in uh, verse 17 with uh, parenthood as for us brothers after we were separated from you like orphans for just a short time in person not in our heart it was with great desire that we made every effort to see you again in person uh so you you see that that thought of the family carrying over again that uh well i think would you say more so paul is calling themselves the orphans there um but either way the idea is this is a family relationship. We, we are God's family, the church. Yeah, and then going back to verse 13, he says, There is also another reason we give thanks to God unceasingly, namely when you receive God's word, which you heard from us, you did not receive it as the word of men, but as the word of God, as it really is, which is that now at work in you who believe. So this is... One of the proof passages that Pastor Lightning and I and other pastors are going to use to prove that the Bible is God's word, not just the words of men. Uh, and Paul says that the, the testimony of God's word being his word and not man's word is just look at the work in the lives of the Thessalonians. And there I look at what happened here in our congregation last Sunday that I baptized a little boy. And so there is God's power at work in saving that child, ripping him out of the hands of the devil and placing him into the hands of his heavenly father. Looking at how God's word had worked two years earlier on that baby's dad when I confirmed him 
uh, working on now the grandfather of that little boy. That I'm working on him to become confirmed as a member of our congregation. You know, three generations that God's word is working on, that's proof that it's not my words, it's not Paul's words, it's God's words. I don't know if uh, I have much more to say on chapter two, um, but uh, I got to say, I don't know if I ever actually have used 1 Thessalonians 2 verse uh, 13 to uh, as a proof passage for God's word. So are you saying I should I should start doing that? Yeah. yeah okay. Now, yeah. All right. I'll do that from now on. That's a freebie from your pastor. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, you, so you do your job well. <laughs> I work at it. Uh, chapter 3. Uh, how does Paul feel about this forced separation? Uh, Paul lays out that he struggled with this separation. He's worried about the Thessalonians' faith. He desperately wanted to see them again, and he thought about them day and night. Paul sent Timothy, probably from Corinth, to strengthen and encourage the Thessalonians. Strengthening meant building up their faith through the gospel promises. Encouraging meant applying God's promises to their lives that they would stand firm. Because the devil was trying to tear down their faith and to silence their Christian witness. God countered his every move with the gospel. So Paul is encouraged that Timothy had returned to him and Silas, telling the good news of the faith and love of the Thessalonians. It, it's a pretty short chapter, really, First uh, Thessalonians 3. Uh, if I would say anything about it, first of all, I think it's good to, uh, to come at it from the apologetic angle of um, these are real historic people that Paul is talking about. Uh, not every Bible passage has to be about how do you uh, how are you strengthened or enriched in your in your personal faith through this? This could be about the greater faith of the church and believers who lived long ago. Uh, and so he's he's dropping names like Timothy and uh, geographical places like Athens, and all of these things are things that can be verified. They're all things that that if you care enough to find out whether or not it's true, uh, th- they they are there for you to research. And in chapter 3, Paul is talking about persecutions. And think about what kind of persecutions you face. Uh, You know, most Christians recognize that there is pressure in our society to keep God's truths to themselves. I think of my daughter, Miriam, who's in college as a junior. She Snapchatted a video to all of us in the family about one of her classes, It was a sociology class on some native culture. They presented as fact the belief of people springing up from baboons. They even included a video of how this happens. Oh, my daughter has to decide to challenge that heathen philosophy or keep her head down. Get the grade and get out uh, because academia denies and ridicules what we believe. Uh, Popular culture that we live in hates it when we say that Jesus is the way. Think of any kind of TV show or movie, they automatically portray a pastor or a priest as close-minded, as a buffoon, as a bigot. They portray almost every single father as idiots, whereas the mothers, they're capable of doing everything without the dad. Uh, They'll portray gay people and straight people living together as right and exciting, but straight marriages are the ones that are having the issues. 
just before I recorded the podcast, I had a member reaching out concerned about the things that are going on in our culture and wondering, is it ever going to go back to the way it was? And, and I messaged her back and said, personally, I don't think so. Uh, but that's because as Christians, we have given up too much ground to Satan. The only way we take it back is by being strong in God's word, as Paul commends the Thessalonians in doing, understanding that, like them, we're going to face persecution in our schools, in our workplaces, uh, in our churches. And I like how you uh, brought up the topic of Satan, because I think that uh, far too often uh, demons and, and the uh, occult are things that people see as superstitious or some kind of a backward thinking uh, mindset of, of previous eras. Uh, but that's not the way Paul talks about it. Uh, here he's very candid and open in saying in verse 5 that uh, I was afraid that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor might have been for nothing. Um, so, so he's not afraid to broach that subject at all. Um, I don't know if you had a whole lot more on chapter three. I'm kind of eager to get into chapter four. So just to let, let you know that. Well, I did want to bring up one last thing is verse 10. Paul says, night and day, we are praying earnestly to see you in person and to supply what is lacking in your faith. Uh, you know, he has this earnest prayer to see the Thessalonians again. Uh, that he's praying that their persecution would diminish so that it's going to be possible for him to return to the city. Uh, And that does happen a few years later in his third missionary journey. And when I was looking at that verse, I was thinking about my first congregation in Radcliffe, Kentucky, which was near Fort Knox. It was a brand new mission church. I was their first pastor that we started with probably 10 members. And it was an exploratory mission, and the Lord blessed me over my eight years there that we ended with 75 members. Uh, but I always like to say that I think we had probably 150 members that I confirmed, but because of Fort Knox, where the people were there like three years, we moved them around a lot. And I wanted to be the guy, you know, Solomon, to build the church, but Pastor Horn, who followed me, he got to be Solomon. I was David, building it up, and then he was that Solomon that was that built the church and went, took it to the next level. And it was really nice then when my wife Shelley and I, years later, were able to go back for a funeral of one of our former members, revisit some of those members that I confirmed and were still in the faith, and then see the new church that was built while Pastor Horn was there. That's funny because uh, at my first congregation, we, I had all sorts of bright-eyed ideas that uh, maybe we're looking at things through rosy-colored glasses. And uh, with the president of the congregation, who was very supportive, um, it kind of made the analogy of uh, Moses uh, bringing his people into the promised land. And uh, then when I ended up taking a call before a lot of our plans or projects got to take fruition, um, we sort of made the comparison that, well, I guess this is okay because now the next pastor will be Joshua <laughs> and, uh, and, and I'm, I'm Moses that had to stay on the other side of the Jordan river. But you got to look in and see everything. Like. Been, somewhat. Yeah. Well, yeah, I guess so. And it kind of ties into what you were saying about the, 
or what Paul was saying about how his longing for those people that he loved, uh, because then it was a year ago that um, <clears throat> out of the blue, uh, I went to this, well, not out of the blue, I was planning and did go to this uh, leadership conference in Chicago. And uh, then out of the blue there uh, were two members from the congregation that I never would have thought would have gone to a, a Lutheran leadership conference, but the the new pastor and his wife had brought them, and it just it made my whole conference to be able to see them. All right, so let's get into chapter four because you're really excited about yes, getting into yes. this. So go ahead and no, it, it, what, I, what it what I'm excited about is that I think this chapter is a great tool. Uh, particularly if you're a pastor, uh, but really if you're any any kind of a believer, um, when it comes to the topic of uh, cohabitation and living together, um, I, I've heard of a lot of young people who say, why is this such a big deal? Why is it so bad that uh, we take a test run of the marriage? Where is there a Bible passage? Because it, there really isn't, is there? Like you can't point to an exact passage that says, don't move in if you're engaged or if you're going to get married. Don't move in together. Um, and, and that's because we move about in the gospel and not in the law. Uh, and this is how our God deals with us. But if you would point them to a passage, I would point them to uh, this one here uh, in First Thessalonians chapter 4, where Paul makes it pretty clear that, um, what, what are you getting there? I'm you, pulling out my catechism you've to got, look up your Bible passages that you need. You've got you've got a you've got a specific passage in mind. Well, if I if I had a specific passage in mind, I'd remember it. But oh, I, I don't. So well, Luther no, this is does. well, this is the one that I point to. But it's not. But here's what I like about it. It's not that Paul says uh, you can't do this and you should do that and and get in line with with the law. Uh, no, instead he comes at it from a very gospel oriented angle. Um, he, he says, you're doing a great job. You've learned things and, and you're progressing well in your faith. Just as you received instruction from us, we now urge you to keep, keep doing good things. Um, and then he moves on and says, uh, and, and this, I like the EHV. I'm glad you set out the EHV Bible for me to use. Um, he, God wants each of you to learn to obtain a wife. And that word for wife is, uh, a, Vessel. Very generic word, yeah. A thing. Uh, God wants you to obtain, I like to say, maybe a good word to translate there would be spouse. Learn to obtain a spouse for yourself in a way that is holy and honorable, not in lustful passion like the heathen who do not know God. In other words, don't take your potential spouse on a sexual test run before uh, you get married. You, you obtain a spouse in a holy and honorable way. Right. So I pulled out my catechism while Pastor Lightning was talking about some other passages that go along with what he's talking about. Ephesians 5, uh, you shouldn't even have the hint of sexual immorality. That's one of the passages I use in, with my young people of, you know, don't even move in together and say, well, there's, well, there's more than a hint if you can see two people living in the yeah, same house. Yeah. You know, well, we're, we're living in separate bedrooms. I said, but what does everyone else think about it? Uh, it's shameful even to mention what the disobedient do in secret, Ephesians 5 again. Uh, even if you look at a woman lustfully. Uh, it, it's kind of hard to imagine living with a woman uh, that you are attracted to and that you're going to marry and that you never have a single 
lustful thought about her as you see her moving around the house. Right. Yeah. Keep the marriage bed pure, it says, too. So with this, uh, and I think we need to drive this home to our young people, our high schoolers and our college students. One of the pastors that I serve with, he likes to say that uh, every year that he and I, we should send the sixth commandment to our college students just to remind them of this. Because when their their own bodies and the bodies of their boyfriend, girlfriend, fiance, whatever, when they're lusting after that, after that, that becomes their idol. And then that takes uh, precedence over God. And so then they're keeping, they're breaking the sixth commandment and the first commandment. And I remember teaching this to my girls when they were very young. You know, I have four daughters, and I remember walking into the bedroom that the two youngest shared. And they've got their babies and their cribs and all that stuff laid out, and they're playing real nicely. And I asked them, well, what are you doing? And they said, Daddy, and they're all excited. We're playing that we're mommies, and they've got each have a baby stuck underneath their shirt. And they said, see, Daddy, we're pregnant. We're getting married next. <laughs> And I said, whoa, we're not playing that way. If you're going to play that you're mommies, you're doing it the right way. Uh, you're going to get married. And guess what? Your dad's a pastor. I can marry you. Then you have babies. But, but it was training them from young on. This is the order. You date. And in my family, each of my girls, they have to have their, their boyfriends or the guys that want to date them. They have to come and ask for my permission to date my daughters. There you go. And then and then they have to ask for permission to be engaged to my daughters. And then, you know, then they get married. And then, well, I don't know what they do, but because that's where I don't want to know that stuff. But eventually we pray for grandchildren. Those that's the order of things and the proper order. And we, we want to teach that to all of our young people. This is probably why God didn't give me daughters, because he knew I would I would intimidate son in laws too much. Uh, Pastor Lightning has three sons. I have four daughters. Uh, but chapter four, the beginning chapters is, uh, ch- or the beginning verses is really talking about sanctification. So I was going to ask you, Pastor Lightning, how do you teach sanctification to your young people? Um, I'd, <laughs> I'd, I'd like to say that I, I do a great job of that. I, I guess maybe what I'm saying is I haven't thought consciously about it. But one thing that I will say, and this would come from uh, 1 Corinthians, I think it's chapter 1 or maybe chapter 2, where it says, um, Jesus is our sanctification. And so so let's start with Christ. Um, and uh, another thought coming, bringing, I've, that was my sort of squirrel moment on 1 Corinthians, uh, but it's a good one. Jesus is our sanctification. Uh, but uh, to bring it back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, Um, I I guess one good angle is the way that Paul takes it here in verse 6. No one is to overstep and take advantage of his brother in this matter, the matter of finding a spouse. And that's maybe a good way to think of it uh, as you are dating or as you are uh, pursuing romantic relations with a person that might be a spouse someday. Um, That if that does not work out and you break up and you end up marrying other people, um, and you you have acted inappropriately in that relationship. You, you've sort of done wrong to the person that that would then uh, later that the spouse of the person that would that would later marry that person. Um, and so Paul is saying in verse six, think about that. 
Don't take advantage of uh, fellow believers that way or overstep against them. Yeah, in verse 1, he describes sanctification as walking so as to please God, as indeed you are doing, walking or conducting yourself. So when I teach sanctification to my youth and adult contramands, so I'll draw a heavy wagon on the, on the whiteboard, and then I'll draw a Clydesdale horse and a chihuahua that are both pulling the wagon. And I ask the students, well, who's the one that's really pulling the wagon? Well, obviously, it's the Clydesdale. But then I ask, which one is feeling good about pulling the wagon? And that's the Chihuahua. So I explain that the wagon is loaded down with all kinds of good works that we do through sanctified living. Which one is really doing the work? It's the Clydesdale. That's the Holy Spirit. But who feels good about doing the good works? That's us, the Chihuahua. And so the key is to live God-pleasing lives. We walk, we conduct ourselves with the Holy Spirit. Uh, that he's the one doing the work, but we're feeling pretty good about ourselves. So what a generous God that he, he, he gives us that, that enjoyment of, of a meaningful participation where he's doing the, the heavy lifting, but then we get to feel good about it. Um, but I will say I'm a little bit um, hurt by this because when uh, we had a little introductory activity in class today on Fridays, it's called One Question Line with my students, and uh, I randomly throw oddball questions at them and see what answers they give me in sort of a silly way. And one of them was, uh, what dog breed do I look most like? And wouldn't you know, it was actually this morning, the two different sets both said Chihuahua. I'm not, I'm not even joking. That do, do, I, do I look like a Chihuahua to you? Well, you kind of look like Skippy John Jones to me. Skip, I don't even know who that is. It's a cat that thinks he's a Chihuahua. Oh, so okay. This okay. is one of my favorite books to read to the kids at school here, Skippy John Jones. I'll have to look into that one. Yeah. So let's look at... Uh, some of the most famous verses in First Thessalonians, and that's chapter 4, verses 13 through 18, about Judgment Day. So I'll let you talk first, Pastor Lightning, about the coming day of the Lord. Yeah, uh, I, I'm pretty familiar with these because we, uh, at my last two congregations, used the uh, historic one-year pericope, and this is the uh, these are these are readings for the end time season. Um, Paul is uh, trying to comfort the Thessalonians because uh, it seems like there were rumors spreading around that uh, that there was uh, Judgment Day and that they had missed it, uh, or that there would be different levels or phases of Judgment Day. Um, you kind of get a, a concept of uh, the the premillennials or postmillennials even back in the in the first century here, and uh, Paul says, "Don't don't worry about that. Uh, the, the ones who are still alive on Judgment Day will not go on ahead of those who have fallen asleep." And Paul does not want us to grieve like those who have no hope. I mentioned before I had the Christian funeral for Dewey yesterday. Uh, now, there was grieving by the family. Before the funeral sermon, I told the family that I wasn't going to look at them because I didn't want to tear up. Now, they did, and they should. You know, they're going to miss their husband and dad and grandpa, 
but these are also tears of joy, not just tears of mourning. A lot of times I'll use the story of Billy, that Billy was a little boy who was afraid of dying. So one night he asked his mom, Mom, what is death like? And mom said, well, you know, Billy, you know how it gets late and you fall asleep in your big brother's bed, and then sometime during the night, big strong arms pick you up and carry you into your room and lay you on your bed so that when you wake up in the morning, you're in your bed in your own room. And that's what death is like. That big strong arms pick you up and then carry you to your own room in heaven. And that's the way it was for Dewey, that the ventilator was turned off a little afternoon on Friday, five minutes after he stopped breathing. Uh, God called him home to heaven. Uh, and then his wife, Dorothy, said, well, I guess he was in a hurry to leave because uh, it took him five minutes. Uh, but Dewey fell asleep in the Lord. He woke up in his own room in heaven. He took his last breath here on earth, which was followed by a first breath of the fresh air of the green pastures and quiet waters of paradise. And then, using Paul's words, on the last day, the soul of Dewey and all of the saints will come out of heaven, that their bodies will rise from the graves to meet their souls that are coming out of heaven. And then if we're still alive, then we will be reunited as we gather with all the saints in the air. That's Judgment Day. It, if you, uh, yeah, that is a wonderful picture of um, falling asleep, and and that's not something that you need to be afraid of, uh, falling asleep in the Lord, uh, and then and then you've got uh, the alarm clock uh, of Judgment Day, which uh, sort of shows you if if people like to talk about a rapture or any kind of a secret uh, taking away of of believers. Um, God is pretty bad at uh, doing it in secret. Um, there's this uh, trumpet call and uh, a voice of an archangel. It sounds like a pretty noisy ordeal uh, when the last day comes. And, and then that leads very smoothly into chapter 5, uh, which describes the last day, uh, that, there, that there will be a surprise about it. Uh, when people are saying peace and security, destruction will uh, suddenly come on them, like labor pains on a pregnant woman. So, so there you've got another analogy. Yeah, I think of a thief, and when I teach that to my young people, I think of uh, when I was living in Kentucky, uh, my wife and I were doing craft fairs at the time, and I was up late one night, a Friday night, getting everything ready. Uh, Shelly and the girls were upstairs in uh, the second floor asleep, and my dog Patches, who was next to me, she started barking, telling her to be quiet because everyone's asleep. Well, it turned out she was a good dog that what had happened was uh, we had a party with other pastors earlier in the week, and so the alarm to the house was turned off. The back door of the garage was unlocked, which was never unlocked, and then the door from the kitchen to the garage was open, which it always is. And some guy came in the back door of the garage, came into our kitchen, reached around the corner, and grabbed uh, Shelly's purse and my wallet and left. But I think Patches scared him away. And he went around the neighborhood doing the same thing. A uh, police officer came like three in the morning, woke us up, and asked us to identify the, the purse and the wallet. But just like that, we, don't, we didn't expect a thief. Otherwise, mm -hmm. everything would have been locked up. 
and the alarm would have been set, and patches would have been set right there uh, protecting the house. But that's what Jesus is saying. A thief can come at any time. Mm-hmm. And uh, a lot of times we talk about all of the bad things going on in the world and uh, the tragedy and, and sadness and uh, corruption. And uh, it's helpful, the, the picture that Paul gives us here of the labor pains of a, on, on a pregnant woman because um, they can be different for, for different women. Uh, it, sometimes the beginning of labor means you've got a long way to go. Uh, it's sometimes a, a day or more, 24 hours, longer than 24 hours. And then sometimes, uh, you know, you, you get the stories of delivering the baby in the car, in the in the cab or whatever on the way to the hospital. Um, it's all kind of a mystery, and that's sort of what Paul is setting up when he describes the last day here. Right. And, and I have a video I share when I talk about these verses of labor pains. I hope uh, it's not of actual... No, it's two guys. Oh, okay. It's two guys that have uh, been hooked up to a labor pain simulator, and they are rolling and crying and writhing in pain. Their two (laughs) wives, they're they're giggling and laughing. And at the end, the two guys are sitting there being interviewed, and the one guy says, that sucked. (laughs) That was way worse than I thought. And the other guy says to the camera, uh, you know, I felt like I was having a baby. Mom, if anything that I just experienced is anything close to what I did to you all those years ago, I'm sorry. You're a superhero. You're one tough mama. <laughs> but the, the key of what Paul is talking about here is that once labor pains start without modern medicine, they're not going to stop. The baby is coming, ready or not. And Jesus mentions in... Matthew chapter 24, uh, famines, earthquakes, wars, rumors of wars, dogs and cats living together, mass hysteria. These are the beginnings of birth pains. I think you may have added some words to Christ there. but Maybe. Uh, When they start, Jesus is coming, ready or not. Uh, And the the final exhortations and greetings uh, you've got, well, you asked me about teaching sanctification, uh, and, and here's a great way to do it as well. Um, keep them short. Uh, little sound bites here is how he finishes up, verse 16. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, verse 17. In everything give thanks. Um, verse 19, I think, is worth focusing on a little bit. And uh, this is the first time I've seen the EHV's handling of it. Do not extinguish the Spirit. Uh, that that uh, concept of the Holy Spirit as a flame, not dousing the flame. Um, and uh, I, I think of maybe a good example would be, we've got a, a little one, a kindergartner, and uh, boy, he can sure express his faith beautifully in song, but then sometimes it's the same song over and over. And uh, sometimes he's not very thoughtful in thinking about in uh, uh, singing it. Uh, with the people around him and how loud he is. And uh, who knows what it could be that it's irritating his older brothers or his parents. And it's easy to, to start to snap. Hey, quiet down, you know, hey, knock it off. Well, he's singing about Jesus. Why would you want to uh, shut it down when he's uh, expressing his faith? That's extinguishing the spirit. Yeah, and then Paul is finishing up First Thessalonians with a series of commands to live as Christians, as Pastor Lightning said. 
And after all of these commands to live as Christians, why does Paul pray that God will sanctify the Thessalonians uh, so that real spiritual growth happens, that it comes through the gospel, that we have our sinful nature, our old Adam, that's always driving us forward. So we need the new man sanctified by the Holy Spirit through word and sacrament. Uh, Like you said, not extinguishing the spirit. So I want to close up this chapter too in talking about something that we do here at our congregation that we hand out on Ash Wednesday and then throughout Lent these little nail pins. They're about three inches long. They look kind of like railroad spikes, just much smaller. We, Our office manager cleans them up, hot glues a pin on it, and then we hand them out to people. And uh, the idea is we want people to uh, explain you know, what this means and that it means that we place our sins on Jesus on the cross. And we have a a big cross that we've made with styrofoam painted to look like wood in the back of our church. And you put those nail pins in on Good Friday to symbolize that Jesus takes our sin away. And we encourage our people to wear these nail pins. And then if someone asks you about them, tell it. And then give them the nail pin. Uh, Dewey, Uh, who was just sainted in heaven, he liked to do this. And so I told a story after his funeral about this, that uh, as Dewey was in the hospital, uh, I walked out of the room, and one of the nurses was there, and she saw my nail pin, and and she asked me about it. And so I told her what I just said to you, and she said, oh, I thought it was from a German drinking game. Because there's a German drinking game called uh, Der Nagelspiel, which is a uh, you know, nail game where you have a hammer and these nails, and you try and pound it in as, uh, as, uh, as, soon as, you, as quickly as you can into hardwood. And, and I laughed when she said that, and I said, well, we are Lutherans, so we do like our beer, but we like Jesus' forgiveness even more. Gave her the nail pin. Uh, the idea is... Uh, live this sanctified life. Live in thanksgiving, as Paul says throughout Thessalonians. Labor under the gospel. Suffer persecution. Live sanctified lives free of sexual immorality. Live in constant preparation of Christ's second coming. Rejoice, pray, give thanks. Do not extinguish the spirit. Do not treat God's word with contempt. Test everything. Hold on to the gospel. Keep away from every kind of evil. As you do this, then, Lord willing, you're, you're going to be able to have that opportunity to talk to other people about the gospel, whether it's using a nail pin or something else they notice about you. I'm going to keep my remarks on uh, chapter 1 of Second Thessalonians fairly brief, uh, but uh, one thing that uh, jumped out at me is the uh, concept in uh, oh, I'm not going to be. Oh, there it is. In verse eight, um, on uh, he will he will exercise vengeance in flaming fire on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. This was something I just talked about in uh, uh, the book of Galatians with my students. That uh, it's kind of odd to think of obeying the gospel uh, because. It is, uh, it's good news that you're just, you're just supposed to believe it, and we're not saved by our obedience. We're not saved by doing good works. Uh, so um, how would you explain uh, 
obey the gospel? Oh, I think the gospel is that uh, good news, and I haven't really thought about it too much. I'll let you go first. I'm sorry. Just throw those things somebody gave me. me. Somebody gave me a piece of advice that the conversational aspect of our podcast was appealing. So I thought I was, I was just going to try to throw some more of that in there. Yeah, but yeah, but tell me before. You I, I do. I should give you a heads up. Uh, no, it, it's, 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 it's two things, really. One of them is that the Greek word for obey is very similar to hearing or listening. So, so really, obeying the gospel is doing nothing more than listening to it. Uh, but then also, uh, sort of like pledging allegiance. It's not that you have to do something or obey a certain, you know, follow a certain procedure. It's that you just stay put under God's not guilty verdict, his forgiveness in Christ. And uh, he, all right, now I'm, now I'm definitely going to give you a heads up to set you up. <laughs> For, for something that should be a home run for you. I, uh, I don't like baseball or softball, just so you know. Okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to set you up for a bicycle kick. All right, I can do that. Um, it's, uh, it, it's the whole concept of vengeance in that same verse. He, uh, Jesus will exercise vengeance, um, and, and he will repay uh, evil to those who have uh, done evil to you. And uh, this is uh, really Jesus, I think, a good chance to talk about Jesus as an avenger. Exactly. He actually uses the word avenger in the previous chapter. It's a good good catch on that. I didn't I was gonna ask you which avenger he was most like. He's, I suppose it gotta be Cap I suppose he's gotta be Captain America, right? If he's the kind of the, the head honcho or uh, or is it Thor with a with a beard? I would say it's Captain America. He's okay. he's, he's the one that can uh, hold up a shield and Molnir at the same time. Ah. But yeah, that that vengeance that God comes with, uh, and I think that's such an important point for us as Christians, that as we undergo persecution, uh, it might be at the hands of government or unbelievers, social media bullies, and so forth. And we want to take revenge. But Paul writes, it is right for God to repay trouble to those who trouble you and to give relief to you who are troubled along with us. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his powerful angels, he will exercise vengeance and flaming fire on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. Such people will receive a just penalty. It's hard for us, but we need to leave room for God's vengeance. But until then... We have to do the difficult stuff of turning the other cheek, uh, forgiving 70 times 7, praying for those who persecute us, living as light in the darkness, because God promises vengeance, like you said. God's going to bring trouble on those who trouble us. If not in this lifetime, then it will be in the eternal death to come. And and if... Our enemies are converted and, and become believers and uh, are saved eternally by Christ and his blood, uh, then we can rejoice about that because we, uh, by nature, we're no better than them to begin with. Um, and, uh, it, it, but yes, the, we are hardwired for justice. Humans are hardwired for justice. We, we don't like uh, inequality or, or unrighteousness. And so God, God here promises us, you, I, I will... I will take revenge, just let, let me do it in my own time. Yeah, and that's the relief that he's talking about. 
that we look forward to relief from all of this. Uh, eternal life in heaven, uh, because as long as this world endures, there's going to be persecution. But when Jesus comes back, then relief is too small of a word to uh, express uh, all of our joy for eternity. Anything that you have that you want to finish up I, with? I was, you know, I was, if you if you wanted to let me soapbox about angels, I was gonna, you know, actually, I don't, I don't have anything more. No, I, I like, I like talking about angels, but that was gonna be about it. <laughs> All right. Well, next week we're going to let Pastor Lightning get up on a soapbox and let him <laughs> talk about the Antichrist in Second Thessalonians chapter two and three. The man of lawlessness. Yeah. And then we're going to spend two weeks in. Amos. So this is Pastor Zarling with Pastor Home Skillet Lightning. <laughs> Stay thirsty, my friends, then drink deeply from the water of life.